One week season. What is going on, you guys? My family. Uh, I love hanging out with you guys. Anyway, we digress. Just did the whole intro for those that are listening to this on uh, re- on the recording. Uh, but we are here, X and I. We're going to be coming to you every Saturday. Uh, again, sorry for the flexibility a little bit this first week. Uh, my daughter is starting travel basketball, and her first game is tomorrow. And then Zandamir's got a birthday party tomorrow. So we were a little bit our own personal time constraints. We shifted it to Friday. But from here on out, we will be coming to you Saturday afternoons live and on recording uh, to get you finally, or I guess make final preparations for the slate coming up on Sunday. Before we jump in, before I bring X in, I do want to talk quickly about the revamped uh, kind of vibe we got going on at OWS. Really, really sharp stuff here going on. We basically broke the week up into three succinct chunks and we are tailoring the content that we're bringing to you falling within those manageable chunks. So we're going to start the week off with reflection. We have podcasts coming out. We're going to have articles coming out. We're going to have early week betting stuff coming out in that reflection window Monday to Wednesday. And then starting on Wednesday, obviously the bread and butter here, the NFL edge is going to be coming out. We're going to be uh, looking to get that out most weeks by Thursday. Uh, but we could have some trickle uh, into Friday as we we're working multiple writers and editors with that as well. And then we're going to wrap up the week uh, with the scroll. That is something new for OWS this season. And I that is something that I am so excited about. That is all of the roster construction pieces, which is kind of our final piece for the week before getting into the games and the slate. All in one place, all scrollable, all in digestible chunks, and it is out flipping standing. I'm really excited about that. X, what do you think about the scroll this year, brother? Man, like, I don't want to over, like, over tout it, you know, but like, I've never read anything like it uh, in my going on eight years playing DFS admittedly eight years ago, the DFS content industry was almost non-existent, but like, I love the focus on strategy and, and you've all seen that like OWS is really focused on strategy this year, F- strategy, roster construction, kind of the next level thinking, getting away from like the traditional, here are the good plays content you see in so many DFS sites and getting towards teaching you all repeatable processes that make you better players as opposed to just saying here are the good plays this week plug them into your optimizer click run and good luck so i think it's kind of it's game changing in the dfs space to me i don't see anyone else who's doing anything even close to it yeah couldn't agree more and if we take that one step further you know ows we don't do private coaching however we tailor the courses that are found in the marketplace to be your private coaching so that is your area where you can go as opposed to spending, you know, industry standard $100, $150 an hour for one-on-one coaching, we tailor the courses so that you're getting three hours, four hours, five hours of that one-on-one coaching. So if you're looking to really up your game, I cannot recommend the courses in the marketplace from 
me and all my good friends here uh, as a way to get that one-on-one -on -one coaching. All right, man. You ready to jump in here? It's been like almost a year. I'm ready to talk some football. Let's go. Week one, NFL season 2021. Let's do it. Looking at this first week, man. So I want to start us off with primary decision points. And we're going to call a primary decision point is something when you're building rosters that could shape the slate. Do you see any primary decision points for week one? You know, what, what is shaping the slate for this first week? I think the most, there's two big themes that stand out to me, right? And this is common in week one, right? Like week one is always chock full of value because the slate comes out and they, they post the contests and they do the pricing so far in advance that things change, right? Like we get news. Um, and so players' roles change. And so it ends up that there's like, there's always so much value in week one. And so what that means is uh, the score you need to target is higher, right? Like 200, 220 points is probably not going to win you a GPP on DraftKings this week. Like you need like 240, 250, maybe even higher just because there's so much value. Um, <clears throat> so one is targeting more upside than normal, right? Like you have to build a roster that has a reasonable chance of getting to that 250 score. You know, filling in a guy who's like, this is a value guy who, you know, he's 3K and he can he can probably get me 12 or 15 points. Like that's not going to do it. Um, and the second big one is, so much of the value this week is focused on these cheap wide receivers who are retracting. And there's a bunch of them, so the ownership's getting spread out. But like, you've got like Marquez Callaway, you've got the the Moore twins, uh, who yes, I realize they're not brothers. Um, you've got like Marquez Valdez Scantling, you've got Paris Campbell, you've got um, who am I missing? Like the low owned ones like Quez Watkins. Like there are so many sub 4K wide receivers, and so many rosters are going to be built around one or more of those guys so like to me that's the single primary decision point that, that's the biggest one um that i just think you're going to see like i would guess at least 80 percent of tournament rosters have have a sub 4k wide receiver on them yeah I, I mean you you hit the nail on the head for where my thought process is at for this week um people are going the i guess the the standard accepted habit pattern for building rosters is starting at the running back position would you agree with that sentiment I think for, hmm, it's funny because I just, I don't do that. Um, yeah, yeah, same. But I would say either that or quarterback. I think a lot of really casual players like look at their quarterback first because it's, you know, the quarterbacks are the players that like most people know the best, right? Like they're, you know, everyone knows the quarterback for every team. Uh, if you're even a casual NFL fan, um, you might not be able to name the you know wide receiver three, but you know the quarterback and, uh, and it's the first one on the list. So like I think yeah so quarterback or running back right because then you look for like either the either the value running back who's like slid into a new role or like the stud running back who you want to anchor your roster so yeah I'd agree with you yeah so people are are starting their building process I mean and this when I say people that's we're talking about the field right so lumping everybody in and and looking at common psychological practices and people are going to be starting their builds with quarterbacks and running back position uh, on a standard week. This week, we're coming out of the heaviest best ball offseason with respect to uh, volume. There, you know, we had three, four multiple sites open. People were getting into best ball heavily. Massive contests, two or three sites offering million-dollar contests, these big money things, casuals coming into best ball. And what they're doing there is they're getting a, a better sense of team compositions coming into the season. And where was the most of the buzz surrounding the offseason 
obviously one, the big running back injuries. And then two, even I think even more prominently is the wide receiver values. You know, the, the gap in ADP and the Delta from early draft season to late draft season was the widest for obviously the running backs that are stepping into more prominent roles through injuries. And then wide receivers who were just plain and simply mispriced and misvalued to start the best ball draft season. So who are these guys? Marquez Callaway, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, Elijah Moore, you know, these guys that we're talking about who are the cheap wide receivers who are going to be drawing a lot of attention. So if you're playing, if you're starting your roster building process this week through the wide receivers, because that is what's freshest in all of our minds coming off of best ball drafts window, you're basically lumping yourself into how everybody else is going to be starting their roster building process. And now we see that is like the foundational block for identifying a chalk build. And that's like where I start, like, where's the buzz amongst the industry? We're going to start there and see how the other pieces fall in place. And for week one, it is most definitely those cheap value wide receivers. And we don't really get a look at any of those running backs who stepped in, who are stepping into prominent roles because of injury, you know, like the most recent one, obviously the Ravens, they play on Monday. So we don't get that so it's basically going to be highly congregated on people starting their process this week at the wide receiver position. And so that is going to lead into kind of what we're going to talk about next. And that's the kind of overall uh, slate overview, a macro top-down level look at the slate. And after we do that, we're going to jump into some questions. So stick around and we'll get those answered as well. Oh man, I was talking for a long time. Do you have anything to add X? <laughs> Uh, I just want to note, like, uh, I think if you think about how JM talks about like bottoms up builds, right? Like, I think that you're right that people will start their rosters by looking at like they'll want to like they'll want to play Christian McCaffrey, they'll want to play Derrick Henry, Dalvin Cook, Alvin Kamara, and then they'll be like, how do I fit these guys? Oh, there's really good wide receiver value, and they might they might come to it backwards, right? They might start with like Marquez Callaway is the best wide receiver value on the slate, so he's the first person I put in, and now I have all this money, and so I'll pay up at running back, right? So. To your point, Perceive. I think the common way, yeah, the common way we're going to see roster construction play out is like cheap wide receivers, expensive running backs, uh, Kyle Pitts or Travis Kelsey, I guess, at tight end, um, you know, and likely more more ownership on the expensive quarterbacks as well, right? Like Kyler, Josh Allen, Mahomes, Hurts, uh, right? Like, so I think that it's it, the the common construction is going to be like all the wide receiver value, like. I would, I'm trying to think. I yeah, keep trying to think and, about this. Like, what percentage? Like, what, let me ask you: What percentage of rosters do you think have at least one or at least two uh, sub 4K wide receivers on them in the Millie Maker? Eighty percent. I would it's go eighty percent for one. Yeah, I would say eighty percent have at least one. I wonder how many have at least two. Yeah, forty, fifty percent. Yeah, probably up there as well. Yeah. So, and when you're if you're playing, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say like, <clears throat> so that's you know like so that's the pivotal decision point, and you know we'll get into more of that later about like who these guys are, I think, and uh, and you know how you can play around that, like what you're knowing where the field's going. Like, I will say it's unusual in week one in my experience to have such clear knowledge of where the field is going. Um, yeah. And most week ones things are a little more spread out because we know less about the team identities and. 
it's like there, there's often clear chalk. Like there's often a few clear chalk plays, but like having such an incredibly clear idea of where such a large percentage of the field is going to go from a, just an overall roster construction perspective. And I can't remember a time when I could think 80% of the field is going to be built this way. And, and that's an incredible edge to us. Yeah, 100%. And when we, when we do jump into these names of the players, we look at the slate, we're also going to talk about the slate from the perspective of these roster construction processes that we're talking to here. And in doing so, we're going to discuss how we leverage that knowledge, uh, which is, I think, going to be really where we make our money here in week one. All right. I dig it, dude. You crushed it. We are cooking. So we're going to jump right into the quarterback uh, position. The way that the quarterback position or the way that I see the quarterback position and I th- the way that I think the field sees the quarterback position is basically three tiers. There's the Mahomes, Kyler Murray, Josh Allen tier, which is 8,100 through 7,400. We'll call those the pay-up premium. There's the middle tier from Aaron Rodgers down to uh, probably Matt Ryan. So that's 60... 800-ish down to the 6,000 range. And then the rest of them below, I would classify as the value quarterbacks for week one. You know, the Trevor Lawrence's, the Ben Roethlisberger's, Matt Ryan, all the way up to, uh, or all the way down to, I should say, the Min Price quarterbacks who are getting a start. We have Zach Wilson, who is 5K. Uh, We have Sam Darnold, who is 5K. People aren't going to play Jared Goff, but he's 5,100. And so on and so forth. So we have very three distinct tiers. And I guess looking at this slate overall, and with us able to narrow down with a high level of confidence that people are going to be playing these cheap wide receivers, well, if you look what that does to the rest of rosters is now you have all this salary left over to spend at other places. The first place people are going to be looking is at the running back position. So now you see chalk start to develop at the running back position the next place since kyle pitts is at the tight end position and we expect him to garner a pretty good chunk of ownership is going to be at the quarterback position and so that top tier of quarterbacks mahomes kyler murray and josh allen i'd expect to carry a little bit more than a standard week um if you're talking about like expected ownership of the perceived top guys and I guess that's a, that leads us into another interesting talking point with respect to like crowd psychology and like how we can project the field to attack their roster building process. And if if you think about it logically, if a person is starting their that process with a bottom of the barrel cheap wide receiver or two even, where where are they going to be looking to start the other positions? They're going to be looking top down. Where do I fit the salary and how much can I jam in? And that's going to lead to a little bit inflated ownership on these three guys. What do you think about that top tier X? Yeah, I mean, so I'm just looking at OWS's ownership projections, and the combined ownership projection for Mahomes, Murray, and Allen is just shy of 40% right now. Um, yeah, that's which, insane. Which feels a bit right to me. Like, I feel like I don't like that's right, isn't I think it's accurate. Um, and, and they're all great quarterbacks, right? Like, you can't, you can't dent any of those guys as being you know quote-unquote good plays they're all fantastic elite quarterbacks and you can play them all as long as you do so intelligently um but i think you're right like we're gonna see tons of ownership on that top tier uh the mid tier i think is i don't want to say the mid tier is going to go overlooked because i think that like 
you can construct builds like say if you use Kelsey instead of Pitts or you pay a bit defense, then you can like find yourself uh, a little shy of like a, a Mahomes or a Murray, and so you fit like a mid-tier QB like a Hertz or a Tannehill. Um, but I think where you're going to see a, a really low ownership is is the bottom tier, like the mm-hmm. cheap guys. No one's going to play these guys like Sam Darnold or Zach Wilson. Um, you know, maybe a little Jameis because the game's a high total. Um, but it's because if you build, if you start your roster with a cheap wide receiver, like you just don't need the savings. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna come to the end of your roster and be like, well, shit, I have seven K for QB, and you know they'll they'll plug in an expensive one. So I think that those really cheap QBs are gonna go incredibly overlooked relative to their likelihood of having big games, just because. You know the way people are building rosters this week means that they're they're going to get to QB and they're 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 going to have to spend more money. And so, what does that mean to Hilo being an intelligent listener? That means that is my favorite part of the <laughs> that is my favorite part of the quarterback uh, spectrum to be pu- pulling quarterbacks from for week one. I'm so excited to bet real American dollars on Sam Darnold once again. Oh my God, let's go. Hilo, you're my boy, Blue. <laughs> oh man. My favorite quarterback actually from week one is actually Zach Wilson. I know we're not yep. really going to be heavy on you know talking about our top plays and who the plays are, but like Zach Wilson, it just sets up so well for week one and I love it. I love everything about it. I agree. I, I like Wilson. I like, I, I actually like Darnold quite a bit, which feels disgusting. Um, but yeah, like, uh, I, I love this. the dark side those cheap QBs, man. Like there's some studs in there. I like, I actually like Wentz. Seattle yeah. secondary yeah, yeah, is yeah. Just a joke. And like, you know, he's, he's shown success under this coach and this scheme, this coaching scheme before. So, you know, Fitz Mad- Fitzpatrick's it, always Let's, good uh, for, you know, a few four, four or five touchdown games out of nowhere if season. Yeah. Sorry. Just YOLO, I'm getting into dude. plays. Uh, some of the... into plays. But... <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. Now you got me just vibing on, on, Fitz magic throwing a no look 40 yard completion last year. That was awesome. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> uh, sweet. So we kind of talked a little bit about and, and rolled into the strategy pieces talking about these plays, right? We want to be, we want to be thinking about where the field is going to be going and how do we, how do we put ourselves in position to capitalize on that knowledge? And that is basically a definition of the word leverage. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I wouldn't say misunderstandings, but a lot of different interpretations of the word leverage, similar to like a stack. Like, is it a quarterback with a one pass catcher? Is it with two? Is it 17 people from the field? If you can play 17 people from the field, uh, you know, playing cricket or something. I don't know. Anyway, like what is leverage to me? Leverage to me is if I know players are likely to be doing X, how can I intelligently do Y without making suboptimal plays? And that's basically just a, a bare down version of what leverage is. All right, we're going to jump to the running back position now. We talked about where people are going to be looking to spend their salary, and that's likely going to be, again, primarily the quarterback and the running back positions. So you look at, and I broke this down even in an article I wrote, you know, probably two or three weeks ago in, during the offseason. Uh, just like a, and I know you did a look ahead at week one as well. And we're starting to see a common theme with these top four running backs. They are studs who people have been drafting all off season in the top four picks. Like this is your top four from best ball draft season. So Christian McCaffrey, Dalvin Cook, Derrick Henry, and Alvin Kamara. 
typically going in that order, one through four, until the end of the draft season when Kamara leapt Henry. So people are fresh again, have these running backs in their mind coming off of best ball draft season. They now have all this salary to play with, with these perceived values at wide receiver and playing one to two of them in most rosters. So where are they coming? They're coming right to their comfort zone. They want to be in their happy place. They're coming to Christian McCaffrey. They're coming to Dalvin Cook, Derrick Henry, and Alvin Kamara. The highest ownership in my mind that we're going to see from a roster, a general roster construction sense, is one of these guys, one of these top four, paired with one of the mid-range guys. And we'll talk about uh, that mid-tier of pricing here in a minute. But that gives you the most flexibility for the rest of your roster to pay up at quarterback, to pay up at... Uh, you know, at one wide receiver position and then uh, do basically what you want with the rest. So I think that is going to be your your 45 to 50%, which is a massive, massive number of rosters in play this weekend, are going to be utilizing one payup, one of those top four guys, and then one of these mid-range guys. How are you seeing the running back position overall? I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, if you think it like, I'm just looking at the ownership and trying to think of how that plays out in like roster construction. And, you know, we see, we see Kamara projected highest on OWS, then Antonio Gibson, then CMC, then Dalvin. Um, and at wide receiver, we see Callaway projected the highest unsurprisingly, but then we also see like Diggs, Devonte, Tyreek Hill. And so it seems like the common yeah. build will indeed have, it won't be, you know, you can do a roster that's like three premium running backs and then cheap everywhere else, um, which I think is terrible. But you can do that. But I think most people are going to want like a stud wide receiver, uh, which makes sense because you're seeing a lot of ownership on stud QBs, right? So like the guys who are playing Mahomes want to pair him with Tyreek or Kelsey, and the, the guys who are playing Kyler want to pair him with Nuke, and the guys who are playing Allen want to pair him with Diggs. Um, so there's going to be a lot of that, like that basic stacking of like a QB with their premium wide receiver. So mm-hmm. that's one wide receiver slot with an expensive guy, then two cheap guys. And if you have like if you're using Diggs or Devonte, then you're in that you're in that salary spot where you're probably probably you're probably using Pitts. You've got an expensive QB, so you can't afford two premium running backs. So yeah, I think you're right. You're going to see a lot of like single pay up with a mid tier guy, and there's a lot of attractive mid tier guys in like that six K range that people are going to yep. want to play. Yep. So what what X and I have done basically over the last fifteen minutes is tell you exactly how like 60 to 80% of the rosters are going to look in GPPs. So like, how do we take that knowledge and flip it in our favor without making suboptimal plays? And that's what we're really, really going to hammer down on for the rest of the time that we'll be talking before we take questions. So breaking down these top four wide, or running backs real quickly, like they all have a smidge, even if it's a tiny bit, they all have a smidge of unknowns. You know, Christian McCaffrey... Is coming off a lost season and he has a new, basically a new for him coaching staff. We have uh, Dalvin Cook, who probably has the least amount of unknowns because there was not a lot of change in Minnesota, but there there is that that unknown with respect to you know is he going to be used more sparsely to begin the year with all the wear you know what three hundred and ninety six touches or something like that last season uh, is he going to be used a little bit more sparsely this season coming off of such a hefty workload and with Minnesota looking to compete in the NFC North. Derrick Henry, there's all kinds of narratives with respect to early season versus late season, who, which I think are completely blown out of proportion. But anyway, he is coming off of a 400-touch season himself. 
Uh, and he, the bright and shiny new toy in Tennessee is Julio Jones. And then Alvin Kamara, who basically has his world flipped upside down. He is by clear and far measures the top pass or the top playmaker on his team. We have a new quarterback and there are basically no wide receivers to speak of. So there's, there's a little inkling of, of hesitancy and doubt with those guys, but they are obviously the clear and top plays on the slate. Where it gets interesting is this mid-range of running backs. And all the way for up from Nick Chubb at 7,200, I guess all the way up to Jonathan Taylor at 8K, but I, he's not going to have ownership. Um, but he, I guess, qualifies as that mid-range uh, pricing. So Jonathan Taylor at 8K, all the way down to you know Raheem Moster at 5,800, or even Mike Davis, 5,400, or even Damian Harris at 5,200. There's this wide gap, uh, or this wide, I guess, range of mid-tier running backs. And there are plays, a plethora of plays that come from this range. And so I think we're going to see probably the most ownership in this range is going to land on Joe Mixon right in the middle of this pricing tier. But after him, there's really, it's really, really going to be spread out. So the big picture is not looking at the individual ownership and thinking, oh, look, I'm getting Antonio Gibson at 8%. Like, oh, I'm leveraged. Like, no, man. Like, he's going to be paired with one of those top running backs from that top tier. And you're, the rest of your roster is going to look very, very similar to a lot of or a large portion of the field. So what you're doing by that is you're basically limiting your upside to playing 3v3s or 4v4s versus a large portion of the field. And that's just simply limiting your expected value. How do you feel about this mid-tier? Yeah, I want to note something you said that I think is really important, which is, uh, you know, I'm playing Antonio Gibson at 8%, so I'm leveraged, right? Like, it might help, I think, to kind of define a little more about leverage is not low ownership, right? Like, leverage is... I don't, you might have a slightly different definition, Hilo. Um, but my definite, like when I think about leverage, I think about it as a play I can make that if something that the field is heavily betting on fails, then this this leverage play that I'm making has its chance of success increasing. So, like the common example I always give in all my writing is like Derrick Henry. If Derrick Henry fails at high ownership and the Titans are projected for a lot of points, they're probably going to score somehow. So if the touchdowns aren't coming through Derrick Henry, if we hypothesize a scenario where Henry fails, um, then either one of two things happened. Either the Titans failed completely and just didn't score any touchdowns, or the touchdowns came from someone other than Derrick Henry, i.e. through the air, probably. Um, And so like a leverage to me is not just low ownership. It's not just saying, well, you know, this guy is going to be 30% owned. Like Marquez Calloway is going to be 30% owned. So I'll play this one other cheap wide receiver who's 2% owned and haha, I'm leveraged, right? No, you've just given yourself a 1v1 versus all the other rosters with Calloway. Um, leverage is when you can say, if Calloway fails at high ownership, who, who else does that impact? Who, you know, who is likely to succeed in that scenario? Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I think the mid-tier running back is interesting. I think to your point, like we all think we know a lot about football and we, you know, we're all pretty knowledgeable folks. We're all fans. We're all DFS players. And that tends to lead to overconfidence. And it's hard for us to admit what we don't know a lot of the time. And, you know, Hilo's, Hilo's called it, I think, really accurately. Like we don't know 
what's going to happen with these elite running backs. You know, CMC might not get 30 touches a game and play 90% of the stats anymore coming off of a lost season and in a new coaching staff who might try to, who might deploy him differently, right? And <clears throat> Vikings might hold back on Dalvin a little bit after a big season and coming off of, uh, and he had, he got banged up a couple times last season, you know, Henry's got a few seasons of a lot of workload on him and running back is not a position that ages well. Uh, they're also underdogs, right? If they fall behind, Henry vanishes because he has no pass game role, you know, Kamara, uh, if you're the if you're the Packers uh, defensive coordinator, um, you're going to play the, if you're going to play the Saints this week, and you know that they basically have Alvin Kamara and then a bunch of nobodies. You probably stick uh, Jair Alexander. I don't know if I pronounced his name right. Uh, you stick him on Callaway, and then you just double team Kamara all game long, and you dare the Saints to try to beat you with any of the scrubs on the roster. So like all these guys could fail. And we don't know we don't know as much as we think we do in week one. In fact, week one we know the least, except for week two, after we overreact everything that happens in week one. So like I would I tend to prefer embracing even more variants than normal in week one, because where the field is gonna be heavily, like highly, highly confident where ownership congregates, uh, the chalk is think is is less likely to hit in week one than it is in week five or week ten. So I'm all over the mid-tier. And I think not just are the mid-tier running backs, there's some really good plays in there, but the if you do like a double mid-tier build, you've also now just immediately created significant roster differentiation um, from all the other rosters out there. And if you you know if you think that like guys like Raheem Mostert or Joe Mixon or Najee Harris or Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, if you think they can't put up you know 30-point games or even 40-point games, like that's in their range of outcomes. And you know will it happen every week? No. But it's in the range of outcomes, and it's just like you know, 15, 20 points is in Camara's range of outcomes, and so like they have they have ceilings that are close to as high because they're going to get just as many touches, um, and so like I, I especially like Mixon and Harris because you know at the end of the day we're paying for volume at running back, uh, and you know volume's the name of the game, and uh, and those guys are some of the few real three down running backs that are left in the NFL. You know the three down bell cow running back is a disappearing position as more and more teams embrace like timeshares. Or just uh, or just splitting the running back position based on like skill set, where you have your your two down bruiser and your and your uh, and your pass catching back, and then your oh god, who is that like? What's what's the name of that running back who would just always come in at the goal line and steal Lashawn McCoy's touchdowns? Oh lord! When you said that, I immediately thought Legarrette Blunt before uh, at the end of his career, but it wasn't him. In, no, in it wasn't Blunt. God, who was it? It was like, like this asshole who would just show up on the one yard line every time. And, you know, like he'd have like three carries for two yards and two touchdowns. And McCoy would have, you know, 120 rushing yards and no touchdowns. So, like, yeah. you know, their teams are splitting up the running back role, right? And these three down backs are rarer than they used to be. And so, you know, when you find one, um, there's a reason why Kamara and McCaffrey and Cook uh, are priced so high. And it's not just that they're good, they are, but they're priced that high because of their role. Um, and there's a reason why Kamara is priced lower than those other guys, which is that historically he has not had the full three down role. He's, you know, had some rushing, but he rarely gets, you know, 25 plus touches. Um, although this week he might now that, you know, Latavius is gone. Um, but like, you know, you've got two three down running backs in Mixon and Harris, and I think they'll be played quite a bit, but I don't think they're going to be played much together. Right. If most people are spending up, like you can pair two bell cow running backs who could both easily get 25 plus touches in a reasonable matchup. Uh, and the pairing of that is going to be very low owned. 
And there you have it. Pod is done. That is it. Let's go home. Go win all the money. Those, <laughs> those, I mean, I love that you highlighted that. And um, I'm, I'm glad that our conversation took us this route because Najee Harris and Joe Mixon are two running backs who have a very clear path to being priced 1500 2000 even more than they are now within the next, like not even that long, within the next maybe four to six weeks before we even hit a third of the season. Um, these guys are... And that is if what we think we know about these offenses carries true into the season. We think Najee Harris was drafted in the first round to take over that Le'Veon Bell role, you know, legacy Pittsburgh Steelers role. We think Joe Mixon is being asked to do more and the coaching staff does not want him to leave the field. So we think we know these things. But again, there is that inkling of like that unknown where I think there's going to be some hesitation. And these are two guys where I want to be early on rather than late. Uh, And again, running back is very much so a volume position. So other two, I'm going to add two more names to that list. And these are a little bit one. I'll just jump right into it. Um, Robinson. So James Robinson for the Jaguars uh, is we're expecting to be like a just a, a tier below a workhorse running back. So like instead of 95% of the running back touches, he's expected to get maybe 75 to 80%. But the matchup or that paired with the matchup with Houston, who is coming off of a season where they allowed the most fantasy points per game to opposing running backs. They just traded their best, who is not even that good corner in Roby. They... J.J. Watt has, is now in Arizona, and they are expected to be historically bad and rebounding because they have umpteen million dollars tied up in their own backfield of four people, which is another story for another day. Anyway, James Robinson, a guy who is a good mix of expected workload and expected efficiency, who I really like in that same tier. And then another guy I'll add to that list is Raheem Mostar at uh, 5,800. He's one of those guys where I have this the strange like inkling, like the high-low senses are tingling on the back of my neck, uh, taking us back to week two from last season with the Aaron Jones call. So a guy who we are not expecting to get anything more than, you know, 60 to 65% of the running back opportunities. However, the matchup is absolutely pristine. We have a smash mouth offense going up against a smash mouth or an expected to be smash mouth defense uh, in Detroit. But that, smash, that same smash mouth defense is starting a rookie nose tackle uh, in his first NFL game. So it sets up where the efficiency could outweigh the uh, expected usage for Mostert. Anyway, the running back position as a whole, extremely interested in that middle tier. And that's going to kind of start to give us this sense of, you know, where are these rosters going with and how can we best leverage that? Well, from a roster construction standpoint, the, the, really the best way that we can leverage the field this week is to click balanced rosters and submit balanced rosters into these contests. You know, staying away from the pricing extremes at wide receiver is going to help us do that. Uh, and without further ado, we'll jump right into the wide receiver position for this slate. Do you have any closing parting comments on running back X? 
Uh, I want to, yeah, I love Robinson. I want to note one thing. Robinson is only 5,900 on FanDuel, and he's expected to be incredibly high owned there because that's just an egregious mispricing for FanDuel's pricing structure. Um, and so if you play both sites, the uh, the clear way to play this is he's projected to be, you know, 25, 30% on FanDuel and like 3% on DraftKings. So underweight him on FanDuel and overweight him on DraftKings. He's a good play, but you can that way you can play him uh, where you get the ownership uh, that's much more favorable. Um, I also want to note, I kind of like Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. The matchup isn't good, right? Like the the <clears throat> Cleveland's a good defense, um, but the Chiefs are an incredible offense. Uh, Edwards-Hilaire got really unlucky with touchdown variants last year. Uh, his expected touchdowns for the for the workload he got should have been significantly higher. I think it was like he should have scored like eight or nine. I think he scored like four. Um, so like, and I, I, he's another guy I want to be early on. Like, I think the talent has never really been in doubt with him. He's a good running back with a good workload, a good role, good pass game role on what is, you know, one of the top three offenses in the NFL. And he's 6,600. Like, he's another guy who I think is likely to be priced higher as the season goes on. Um, but I think people have kind of forgotten about him because his rookie year was pretty disappointing. Yeah, and that's another player who's evidenced by the ADP off, all offseason in best ball. You know, he was a fifth, sixth, seventh overall pick in 2019 or in 2020. Got years, just lost a year there. Uh, and he's going in the third round in, in 2022. Jesus Christ, 2021. <laughs> uh, I'm Hilo. I know my years. COVID timeline. Yeah, dude, exactly. Yeah. What we just lost the last 18 months anyway, but yeah, that that's another great point uh, being early uh, rather than late on CH. Love it. All right, let's look at this wide receiver position and we're just going to take a quick macro look at it as opposed to uh, talking about specific tiers because we really did that uh, at the beginning here. Obviously, people are going to be starting at that uh, bottom tier of pricing at 3K, which is going to open up so much more that feeling of euphoria, like, oh, man, I have all this salary to work with. Uh, where am I going to spend it? Well, you're going to spend it like 80% of the field is going to be spending it. So like we alluded to earlier, it's going to lead to a little bit of increased ownership uh, amongst the top tier of wide receivers. And we'll call that all the way down to probably the Adam Thielen range. So uh, about you know six or seven thousand in salary and up, and it's likely going to be paired with that cheap guy. And then depending on you know if they play Kels, if they play uh, if they play um, Pitts at tight end or what are they doing at quarterback, will really define that last wide receiver whether they're going to be paying up at that final wide receiver spot or it's going to be one of these mid to low range guys. Um, and again, that just gives us such a clear picture of where we can create leverage without entering suboptimal plays. A bunch of these guys in the mid-range um, who are projected to be wide receiver ones on their team, who are projected to be in good uh, game environments, you know, Russell Gage, Brandon Cooks, uh, Jacoby Myers even. Um, these guys that, oh, lest I forget Corey Davis, but these guys who are in this middle tier, who are expected to go largely overlooked by the field, who are their wide receiver ones on their team, who are in good game environments, who are basically some of my favorite plays on the entire slate. X, what do you feel about the wide receiver pricing tiers, I guess? Yeah, I just want to know, I'm, I'm browsing through our ownership projections. Uh, I'm looking for owner, I'm looking for wide receivers who are like five to 
5k to 6500 or so that kind of mid-tier um and seeing where the first one is the first one is LaVisca Chenault at 4% ownership. Actually, no, excuse me. Uh, first one is Brandon Ayuk at 4.49% ownership. So, like, this mid-tier is going completely overlooked, right? Everyone's going to be going for this Star Scrubs build, especially Star Scrubs at wide receiver. And so, like, the clearest way in my mind to leverage the field this week, like, if you want to enter 150 lineups and you want to spend 10 minutes doing it and you still want to have a reasonable, you know, reasonable chance at building plus EV lineups. The only thing you have to do is pop into an optimizer and just X out every wide receiver under 4K uh, and then click run and make sure you're pairing your quarterback with a receiver, you know, basic correlation stuff. But like the simplest way to differentiate your lineups from the field is don't play any of these cheap wide receivers. Now, there are, I think, smarter ways to do it than just that, right? I think, and we'll get into some of that strategy. Like there's, there's ways you can play these guys in an intelligent way that the field isn't necessarily doing. Um, but like... If you're going to like no one can sit here and tell me that Julio Jones and Brandon Cooks and Corey Davis and Russell Gage, maybe not Russell Gage, and Deontay Johnson and Michael Hardman and Robbie Anderson and you know DJ Moore, that those guys don't have 30 plus ceilings, right? We've seen all those guys put up 30 plus points uh, in good matchups. And a lot, of, a lot of the guys are in good matchups. Like you can get the ceiling you need in that tier. Um, you know, I can't predict if it's going to happen this week, but what I can tell you is if it does happen and you're on it, no one else is going to be. So, like, I think where people are going to get lost here is they're going to try and get cute picking the cheap wide receivers. So they're going to say, okay, well, Marcus Calloway is going to be super owned. So, like, what I'll do is I'll play Jalen Waddle or I'll play Paris Campbell or I'll play, you know, I don't know who else, Marcus Valdez-Scantling. And it's not like those guys are bad plays, but the problem is, is if you build your roster that way, your overall roster is going to be the same as, as the majority of the field. You're just going to have, you know, MVS instead of Callaway. And what that means is you're basically playing a 1v1 against Callaway. And if MVS beats Callaway, cool, but you, st you still have the same roster construction as, you know, 50 to 80% of the field. So you don't actually benefit that much from MVS beating Callaway. And if Callaway beats MVS, you're just dead, right? So I think the better way to do it is to like, you want to think about how you play these guys intelligently, either like in game stack situations, or you could feasibly consider just avoiding them. Like, I don't know what the odds are that one of these, you know, sub 4k wide receivers puts up 25 points this week. There's a lot of good ones, you know, it could happen, but the odds are not hundred percent that one of these sub 4k dudes puts up 25 plus points. And that's probably what you're going to need from them. So I, I do think that if you want to take the approach of just fading all of them, you're going to end up some very differentiated, uh, very differentiated rosters. And I, I think that's a viable path. Yeah. And that brings us back to how we started this podcast talking about how this is not a standard week where 200 points, even 220 points is not going to win you a GPP. So is, is 20 points from any single member of your roster? Like, is that GPP, you know, winning worthy? I don't know. Likely not for this week anyway. Um, to the point where you're almost putting doing yourself a disservice by trying to figure out who the one of the you know seven to eight sub four k wide receivers is going to hit, and um, especially for large field stuff for for single entry and for three max stuff, you you can probably get away with you know picking that right sub four k uh, and it being optimal for for large field stuff. It, it's you're really really working uphill from the get go by entering these guys you know starting your lineups from this tier. Love it. With that, we'll move over to tight end. We kind of alluded to where the field is going to be going. Obviously, it depends on the rest of the rosters, but likely 
Travis Kelsey and Kyle Pitts are going to be where majority of the rosters or the, I guess the people entering rosters in this, in contest this week are going to start at the tight end position. And if they want to generate leverage, they're going to play around with their roster after they've already entered those guys in and figure out like, how can I make my roster look different now? Now that uh, I know that, you know, 40% of the field is going to be on either Travis Kelsey or Kyle Pitts. Who is, I guess, looking at the tight end position from a expected range of outcomes versus salary perspective, which is, you know, obviously it lays on the bell curve. If you, if you're unfamiliar with kind of how I define a range of outcomes, uh, highly recommend checking out any of the courses because I know that is in a lot of the courses uh, this season. But that said, the penultimate play at the tight end position is Kyle Pitts this, this week. He has the highest range or the, I guess, furthest, furthest right range of outcomes. So the, the highest floor plus the highest ceiling for the price for this week. And so without like having to make our roster look different by plugging in a different player like how can we smartly leverage the fact that he's going to carry ownership but he is the top play on the slate and like i we go over some of that in the end around we go over some of that in the scroll uh so we're not going to hammer down on that but these are the types of of thought processes that we're, we're really trying to hammer down this season and directing or i guess tailoring that thought process to think differently than the field we don't have to play different players than the field. We have to think differently than the field. Any uh, Anything else to say on tight end? Short and sweet there with that position. Yeah, I mean, my tight end strategy is super simple. Like, I'm playing Pitts. I'm playing Kelsey. I might play a smidge of Kittle. Um, basically, like, I think Kit, I think Pitts is highly likely to score at least 15 points um, with, with upside well beyond that. Uh, it's hard to imagine how he falls below that. Um, I mean, it's football, anything can happen. He could, he could get hurt on the first play, but like, you know, if we're playing for what's likely, uh, it's, it's hard to, it's very hard to see him falling below 15 or so points. And so the only tight ends I want to play are the guys who have ceilings high enough to compete with him, where if Pitts has an okay game, but if Kelsey has, you know, a, a blow up game, like Kelsey and Kittle can both easily surpass 30 DraftKings points. And so if Pitts only gets you 15 or 20, and Kelsey gets you 30 or 32, uh, then, you know, even even with the significant salary you've invested in Kelsey, like that raw point gain at a thin position is material. So like, but I don't want to fuck around with like Noah Fant and Robert Tanyan and Johnny Smith. And it's funny, I'm looking at ownership right here. And, and this is where I can tell, like some people say the edge in DFS is dead. And I will tell you the way to see the edge in DFS is not dead is to go pull up our ownership projections and look at tight end uh, because it's Kyle Pitts first. Travis Kelsey, George Kittle. The next six guys are six different tight ends, all priced within $500 of Kyle Pitts. And my and my perspective on this is like playing any of those guys is really just a flat mistake. Um, the odds of Noah Fant or Robert Tanyan or Johnny Smith outscoring Kyle Pitts are minuscule. And even if they do, you're still in that same position that we talked about before with the cheap wide receivers, where if you do that, if you're just, you're creating a one for one, where if you win, if you win the one for one, you only get a very modest gain. And if you lose the one for one, you're sunk. So like, you know, if you want to, when you create those leverage spots, you want it so that if you win, your upside is significant. 
if your leverage plays out. And in these, when you're just playing like a one v one with a with a similar priced guy, when you when you win that one v one, your gain is minimal. So like that's I I don't want I have no interest in any of those guys. The only guy you could possibly sell me on here of the cheap tight ends are two of them, which are Tyler Conklin and Tyler Croft, the Tylers. Uh, yes. And I, I and I don't really want very much of them, but I'm gonna be stacking both those games, and I'm okay including them in a game stack situation because. That's a that's a way to leverage your whole roster because no one's going to pay down at tight end this week, right? No one's going to be spending below that Pitts range because Pitts is so cheap and so good. Um, but like, and those the, the thing that makes those two tight ends uh, interesting to me is they'll also be on the field almost every snap because those two teams don't have any other tight ends, and so like the, the, there's a realistic outcome that either of them could get to 20, 20 or twenty plus points. It's unlikely. But it's within the range of outcomes when they're on the field for 80 or 90 percent of the offensive snaps, because those te- those two teams don't have anyone else to replace them with. So, like in game stacks, I'd play those two. But other than that, really, for me, it's it's Pitts and Kittle. Again, crushed it. Let's go home. Love it. I will add for the uh, the two cheapies that you uh, mentioned, Tyler Conklin and um, oh geez, Croft, Croft. The Thank Tyler's. you. The other Tyler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not only are they really the only tight ends on the field, but they're also a top three pass catcher on their offense because the offenses are expected to be so um, uh, basically funneled towards only three primary players. You know, in, um, in Minnesota, you've got obviously the two wide receivers in Thielen um, and Jefferson. And then Dalvin is, you know, a 45 to maybe 55 overall targets throughout the year. So what is that? That's, two to four targets a week, right? So um, not highly, highly involved in the pass game. Then you look at the Jets where if Keelan Cole misses, who is currently a game time decision, they have Corey Davis, they have rookie Elijah Moore, and they have uh, Croft. And that's, that's like their pass catchers. And they have a smattering of like four different running backs that could be involved in the pass game, but we don't know. Right. So like those they're one of the three primary pass catchers on their offense and there's nobody that can come in behind them uh, to take snaps away. So uh, I, hi, I like those guys in game stacks. I will likely only be running them in game stacks, uh, for example, to highlight just like the insane amount of leverage that you can gain by um, by putting one of these cheap, cheap tight ends. If you're playing a game stack from the Jets and Panthers game and you're playing a New York Jets primary stack, bringing it back with a member of Carolina. And this would be, I'm betting on the game environment, overwhelming compared to Vegas implied team totals and what the field will be on. We already talked about ownership, so that checks that box. So if you're running a New York Jets stack, starting it with Zach Wilson, we know the primary ownership from the Jets is going to be on Elijah Moore. So you're like, okay, let me go to that mid-range. I'll grab Corey Davis and put him in the stack. And then in addition to not only not playing Elijah Moore, you play Tyler Croft in that stack. Like that is, that does not take a large stretch of the imagination to say, if this game environment overwhelms and plays faster pace, plays to a higher game total and the jets are having to be passing and uh, Wilson throws for three to four touchdowns. Like where are those touchdowns going? Like it could be to, the two people not named Elijah Moore and you're just generating an insane amount of leverage when doing so with respect to how the rest of your roster looks. All right. Beat that dead horse to death. 
Anything else to add on the tight end position X? Not really. This is a simple right. one for me. All right. Same, same. Let's move on. Uh, defense. I'm, I'm quickly going to go over my habit pattern, um, how I arrive at defensive selection, because I've gotten a lot of questions about how I specifically go about my defensive selection. So I pull my data from Football Outsiders, which is a free to use site as long as you have or as long as you're registered. So you just have to enter your email information and create a password, create an account, and then you're good to go. They do have um, premium stuff, but the, the, the data that I look to for how I select defenses is really a net of the matchups adjusted sack rates and adjusted sack rates allowed. So I take the offensive line data from the offense. I take the defensive line data from the defense and I want pressure in the backfield because that is what leads to mistakes in today's NFL game. It leads to sacks, which leads to fumbles. It leads to interceptions, which leads to points. It leads to, uh, and all those, both of those things or all three of those things lead to defensive touchdowns. So I'm not like out here trying to find the team with the fastest kick returner uh, to, or the best, you know, special team unit to, to find the one out of two weeks that he scores a touchdown. No, I want pressure in the backfield because that is going to create mistakes, which directly leads to fantasy points. So that is how I'm basically really, that is it, how I'm going about selecting my defense for the week. And in doing so, the penultimate defense selection for week one is the Denver Broncos. Um, They were a top five pressure defense in 2020. Um, They are healthy. And, you know, Von Miller, Chubb, these guys are healthy. And now they're uh, matching up with uh, a team in the Giants who was sixth worst in adjusted sack rate allowed in 2020. And they did not address the offensive line until after 53-man cuts, bringing in three other cuts from other teams. So this this is a situation where they are clear and far away my top defense selection. Uh, on the week. Obviously, there's other big names like San Francisco. You're going to have to pay up for them. Um, Atlanta, I liked them about four to five weeks ago where, you know, the big buzz was Dean Peace. And then I really started digging into that defense. And Dean Peace is is extremely or likes to run an extremely complex coverage uh, defense. And what does that really do when we're talking about early season? It leads to a lot of communication errors. It leads to, you know, a dynamic defense is great if you have everybody on the same page. Well, you know, early in the season, there's that huge opportunity for everybody to not be on the same page. I get it. They're 2K in, against a team that surrendered the most sacks in the NFL in 2020. Uh, at 65. So if they're not a terrible punt if you're punting the position, but they're not by any means a top play on the slate. X, how are you handling defense this week? Yeah, I want to reiterate what you said, right? Which is, I think, despite a lot of knowledge in the space now, people still focus on, like, low team totals against. Um, but unless your defense pitches a shutout, which is, like, I don't remember the percentage chance of that happening in an NFL game. It's, like, one, it's very low. Very low single digits. Like, very low single digits. Um, points allowed doesn't really matter. If you allow more than, like, a touchdown, then the points against is not a factor in your defensive scoring, right? You need, um, like, you want pressure... I, I like a favored team because uh, if the under if the other side is losing, they're thro- they're dropping back more, they're throwing more, and you know dropbacks lead to defensive points more than rushes. 
Um, <clears throat> so I think the I, the Broncos are the clear best one, right? Because they're an elite defense going up against a mistake-prone quarterback behind an incredibly shaky offensive line. Uh, and the New York Giants have one of the lowest team totals in the slate. So you kind of get both, right? Like, I don't look for low totals against, but it doesn't hurt, and there it is. Um, I think other high-pressure defenses where there's a really strong uh, D-line, O-line mismatch are the Patriots. The Patriots' pass rush is actually really, really good now, and the Miami Dolphins' offensive line is pretty is pretty shaky. Um, Bills, I think, as well, against the Steelers' offensive line, which is shaky, and uh, the Bills should be winning the game, which means a lot of dropbacks, and Big Ben has looked pretty mistake-prone last year. Um, <clears throat> the Vikings are another one, because the, the Bengals' O-line is pretty shaky, but like the Vikings are kind of like the Falcons, where they're a communication and scheme-based defense, where they seem to start the season shaky every year and then get better as the season goes on, and so I kind of don't, I'm not super interested in them in week one. Um, if you want to go, I think there's one interesting uh, kind of sneakier pick, and I don't think anyone's going to own them because A, they're expensive, um, <clears throat> and and B, there's everyone's playing Callaway and Camara, but the Packers. Uh, <laughs> Jameis Winston was like one of the worst quarterbacks in the NFL. He He turned the ball over at a higher rate than like any other starting QB the last time we saw him, and... Uh, and, and now he's like on the Saints and he's magically fixed and he got eye surgery and he's magically great again. But like until I see that, I'm not sure I really buy it. And so, you know, the Packers are 3,500. Lots of people are going to be playing Kamara. Lots of people are going to be playing Callaway. And so I think that's kind of an, and lots of people are playing Devontae Adams. And so if you want to play like Packers D plus Aaron Jones, um, that's kind of an interesting leverage spot that I might want to allocate a little bit of, uh, of exposure to. I love it. We hit again. Pod is over. We're this is great stuff, man. All right, dude. I think that's gonna do it with the the overall macro look at uh, the slate. I we went about fifteen minutes longer than I intended, uh, but I really I think we provided an immense amount of value with the overall thought process uh, around this slate. And with that, I think we're gonna open it up to live questions. And for that, I'm gonna bring in Aaron. Man, guys, that this is going to be fun this year. This is uh, every weekend, and uh, I think everybody in uh, the chat is loving it too. So great job. Let's uh, move to some questions. I have uh, about 10 questions that I've uh, gathered from the chat. Some have been answered already, so we'll skip over those. Um, but if you guys want to raise your hand, uh, you can raise your hand at the bottom of the screen, and I'll be able to see it, and you guys can come up on stage and ask questions directly to Hilo X or both of them. So let me jump into uh, the questions for you guys, and I'll let you guys kind of just rapid fire these, whatever comes to mind with them. All right. So first one is going to be from Todd from PA. Uh, I think this one's best for X. Um, what rule are you making in optimizers to help you get more of the two mid-tier running backs? Um... It's not really a one rule thing. So the way I run optimizers, and I realize that not everyone does this, but I actually tend to set like target exposure levels for every player, which is honestly is kind of tedious. Um, I realize not a lot of, not everyone does it that way, but I try to set target exposure levels and I'll, or I'll, and I'll like, then I'll start to like go in manually and like boost guys if I'm not getting the exposures that I want. Um, so it's not so much a setting of rules, but I will set like rules that say like, if using Alvin Kamara, do not use 
like probably the couple most popular of the mid-tier plays, right? Like if I'm using Alvin Kamara, I don't want to use Joe Mixon, or if I'm, or I might do, I, I don't know, I don't know how it's settling out yet. I don't really do my builds until Saturday. Um, I might say something like, or if using Alvin Kamara and Joe Mixon, then then X out every sub 4K wide receiver or something like that. So like, I want to I want to make sure I'm overweight on the mid-tier wide receivers. I'll probably also run some that just don't have like some builds that just don't have any sub 4k wide receivers at all. And specifically the way that I'm going to accomplish this is I will do it by um, only including the 4k, the sub 4k wide receivers in a game stack. So like if Marquez Callaway uh, must use Aaron Rodgers or Jameis Winston, if Elijah Moore must use Sam Darnold or uh, Zach Wilson. And so that will also just naturally uh, force more exposure to the mid-tier range because in rosters that don't have those quarterbacks that align with those cheap wide receiver stacks, uh, then I won't be using a cheap wide receiver, which means I won't have the salary relief of a cheap wide receiver. Thus, my lineup is naturally going to end up being more of a mid-range lineup. So there's a few ways you can accomplish that, um, but that's, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Awesome. Um, just so you guys know, I don't know if this has been broadcasted too much, but X is going to be doing a, a review of rosters on uh, early in the week reflection. And he'll go through some of the things that he has and be able to go through the optimizer. So if you want to learn more on the optimizer, tune into that. I think we're going to be doing it on Tuesdays. Um, you'll be able to find on OWS and it'll be a, a video format for you to follow along. All right. It's a really question. good thing you reminded this, me about that. So I remember to record something. <laughs> um, next, this one's from uh, DT2190. Um, has any of the line movement surprised you this week? Because a lot of them going up and down. Yeah, I had a chance, actually. Uh, that's typically a Friday or Saturday habit pattern for me. Um, again, like I want the most up-to-date data. Uh, and that's also a reason... I digress a little bit, but and also also a reason why I don't look at ownership until you know Saturday or even Sunday sometimes is I want the most up to date and accurate data prior to the slate kicking off. And when you look at like a betting week or you know how or the understanding of how lines move in or or why lines are set to begin with um, from Vegas, Vegas basically wants exactly 50% of the action on each side of a line. And they set the line accordingly to try and get 50% of action on each side. Well, how do they win? They win with the rake. So they, they take uh, the rake and they move on with a guaranteed profit. That would be like ideal Vegas. And that's why lines are set the way that they are. So with that understanding, the movement in, in lines is basically simply more money coming in on one side or the other. And that's going to influence that line, move it up or move it down. And again, when you look at a standard betting week, money is typically heavily coming in right after lines are released. And this is from like heavy, heavy sharks who are throwing down $100,000 uh, and, and moving the lines initially. And then there's another massive chunk coming in, you know, late Saturday, early Sunday, when we have the most information to be able to make our decisions. Uh, so that's when you're really going to see the largest line movements. And with week one, it really, you don't gain too much out of looking at line movements because these lines came out two and a half weeks ago, you know, after the final preseason game. Uh, and because we had this, this week off, or I guess 
one and a half weeks ago. We had this week break between the final preseason game and the first uh, NFL week one. So there isn't a a whole lot to gain from lines that are being influenced very, very gradually over the last 10 days when from when they were first released you know that long ago so i would say i really haven't paid much attention to that at all in a standard week again i'm not really looking at that until late saturday early sunday to get the most up-to-date and accurate information awesome and then just another scheduling some this is on the topic here uh hilo is going to be doing a monday uh, bets piece for everybody so it's going to be an early bets piece that will come out um to give you guys kind of a heads up if you want to get some early bets in for the week um so check that out that'll probably come out monday and uh also hilo will be doing a podcast with pavel uh midweek going over some of uh the uh the uh exploring extremes is what it's called so they'll go into more detail on that wednesday and you guys can tune into the podcast network for that one all right um Let's see, this one's from Solo. Can you guys go through the injury scenarios and different ways you approach them? Uh, Yeah, I'll start. So there's two types of injury scenarios, right? One injury scenario is when there's an injury that happens uh, on Sunday and it generally happens after the slate for the next week is released. And so that's what gets us like the super cheap value guy who's moving into a new role, um, you know, a, a min price running back or something like that. The second injury scenario is the late news, right? Like, uh, you know, a guy's, a guy's questionable. Uh, he's expected to play. Everyone thinks he's playing. And then inactives come out Sunday morning and he's out. Um, and you're like, shit, and you're scrambling. And that's even more impactful, of course, if that guy's in an afternoon game and we don't know about it until, you know, after the early games are are blocked. Um, so I think what you're probably really asking is the second question about how do you deal with the uncertainty in like Saturday night, Sunday morning. Um, and so what I will usually do is if it's a really impactful player who seems legitimately uncertain, first off is follow Adam Schefter. Like he will tweet out Saturday night, Saturday evening, um, you know, what he think, what he thinks, what he's hearing um, for who's likely to play. And he's pretty spot on accurate. It's pretty rare for him to tweet something unless he's highly confident in that. Um, and so that'll give you some, some indication of who's playing and who's not. Um, but then Sunday morning, um, usually what I'll have is I'll have like if then rosters. So like if there's a really important guy who's who's questionable and who seems like like a game time decision, uh, I'll have 50 50. Sorry, I'll 50 50. I'll have um, I'll have two sets of rosters uh, because what I don't want to be doing is sitting there like scrambling at, you know, with an hour and a half to go until games lock, trying to rebuild, you know, 150 rosters on DraftKings and 150 rosters on FanDuel. Um, and then maybe some early only rosters too on both sites, right? Like that's just too much to deal with. So I'll try to build those like if thens. And so like, you know, if Alvin Kamara is questionable and, you know, like I'll, I'll build rosters with him if I think he's a good play, if I, you know, and then that I'll have like, you know, a second set of rosters that's like, if Alvin Kamara is out, play, I guess it's Tony Jones now, whoever that guy is. Um, and so I'll have like rosters with Tony Jones in it instead, right? And I actually love those times because you get like so much, uh, so much <laughs> leverage is the wrong word, but um, people don't own those guys at the rate they should when the news is late, right? So if a guy gets ruled out at 8.30 a.m. at my time, I'm West Coast, right? 8.30 a.m. Sunday morning and the game's lock at 10 a.m., 
a lot of people just don't have time to shift. And, and they might get Kamara out of their roster, but they don't have time to rebuild their rosters around the new guy. And so I will generally try to overweight the guy who's stepping into a new role if that news comes super late. Um, and if it happens in the afternoon game, oh man, like I am all over that. A couple of years ago, there was, uh, there was what was it? It was uh, Charkandrick West for the Chiefs was like min price or right around min price. And he was going up against, uh, I think they're playing, I think they're playing San Diego. And it was an afternoon game and everyone was on him. He was like the chalk play of the week. He was, you know, 40 or 50% owned in the Millie Maker. He was like 90% owned in cash. And uh, coming up on the afternoon slate, uh, Marshawn Lynch for Seattle was suddenly out and Thomas Rawls was going to get the start. And so I, my cash roster was behind and I didn't have any tourney rosters that were looking super competitive that week. And so I just did a global swap across my entire roster set of swap, uh, you know, everyone, every Charcantic West out for Thomas Rawls. And Charcantic West put up like 10 points or 12 points. And Thomas Rawls went absolutely berserk and put up like 40 points or something like that. And he was like four or 5% owned because not only was it late news, but it was late news after the early games had locked because it was an afternoon game. And so a lot of people, either they were their way, they weren't they weren't thinking of late swap at that point, or, or they just didn't have the roster flexibility. Um, or they just didn't think about it because actually that's, that's a lie. Everyone had the roster flexibility because everyone played Charcantic West. So everyone had that flexibility. Um, and it, that ended up taking, uh, saving a bad week for me. Like I was going to, I was going to lose that week. And that ended up like, because, you know, I, I got plus 30 points on like almost every roster, uh, it smashed cash, uh, you know, didn't, didn't like win a tournament that week, but I just ended up like making significant money that week, whereas I would have lost a lot. So, you know, like it's the later the news, the more impactful it is, the more, the more of an opportunity you have, uh, to differentiate. And that's why late swap is key. And that's why being able to be flexible is super key. Hilo, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I'll piggyback a little bit. I think um, with respect specifically to week one and the questionable players, majority of them are in basically wide receivers in poor situations to begin with. So who is going to be able to step into that role and provide any value? Really nobody. And the one exception that, or I guess there's really two exceptions, the, the first being Emmanuel Sanders, like they're in a high pass volume offense. So a wide receiver who is missing from, you know, the top four wide receivers uh, creates opportunity for the remaining players. But when you're talking about guys like, um, like Traquan Smith or Curtis Samuel or Odo Beckham Jr., these guys who were either ruled out earlier this week or, you know, placed on short-term IR or are questionable coming into uh, the weekend, like what could happen behind them almost is inconsequential because like okay, so if Odell Beckham misses this game at the last minute and you think that you are being sharp by playing like Jarvis Landry, like it's still like the worst deep passing matchup in the league. It's still a matchup where uh, they're entirely prevent and, and they allow below average uh, completion percentage. So like these specifically for week one, there's really nothing that jumps out to me outside of, like we talked about Emmanuel Sanders. And then the big one for me is Keelan Cole. And that's, that seems so inconsequential to a lot of people. But like, if Keelan Cole misses this game, who it came in is coming into the season as the wide receiver two on his team, and we already have Jamison Crowder ruled out, and the game environment is one where it doesn't take a large stretch of the imagination to see it playing to the over, like we already talked about, like that, you basically are left with three pass catchers in, you know, a rookie Elijah Moore, who's min price, and Corey Davis, who 
we know the buzz surrounding him this offseason, um, who's priced at like 4900 something like that, and then a min-priced tight end. So you get like this, this highly concentrated offense seemingly on a spot that is going to go overlooked because they play for a team named the Jets. Uh, and so that, that is really the one that I'm looking at the most uh, leading into week one. I am offended that you did not take that wonderful opportunity to talk about one of the best football names of all time in Little Jordan, or sorry, Lil Jordan Humphrey. <laughs> oh, man. I think I said, like, in one of my pieces this offseason that props to the name, name value. Yeah, he's going to smash. Yeah, I blew that one, dude. Sorry. No, he, he's not. Don't play him. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next question from Tom Bombadil. Um, I would be curious to know how many games are you guys targeting in your cash game lineups? And uh, uh, I'm not sure if you guys play cash, but you guys, uh, I'll leave that for you to answer. Uh, I don't know if Hilo does. I do. Sorry, when you say how many games do you target? Was that the question? Yeah, how many games do you target inside of your cash lineups? Uh, I don't really tend to think about it that way. Um, I, I don't like set a number of games from which I'm willing to have players. I will say, I do tend to stack in cash. And what I try to do here is I try to stack an, one offense that I think is in the best spot. Um, and a narrow offense if possible. And what I'm trying to do there is, you know, it goes back to the reason why we stack, right? We don't stack to raise our ceiling. We stack to reduce variance. Um, and, you know, you have to get fewer things right. And so I do try to have like one main stack in my cash lineups. So I'll pick a team. So like, you know, this week I might, I don't know what it's going to be yet either, you know, the Chiefs, maybe the Chiefs, maybe the Titans, um, maybe the Cardinals. And I'll just try to stack a team so that I can try to make sure that I'm getting the the offensive production of that team. And so like what I try to do there is I'll try to play like, like if I'm playing Derrick Henry and Derrick Henry is super, super popular in cash and he's going to be 60 or 70% in cash games. Uh, well, I want to make like, then I, I think I'd like to play Tannehill because the clearest way that Henry fails is if the touchdowns come through the air. And so playing Tannehill increases the floor of that lineup and reduces the overall variance I'm exposed to um, by just giving me exposure to the Titans offense as opposed to just one player on the Titans offense. Like it's it's really hard to predict player outcomes and player production. Uh, it's can still be hard, but is much easier, is much less difficult to predict game environments. And so I'd rather bet on game environments than individual players to the greatest extent possible. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's my cash approach. I don't try to target like, you know, my my cash lineup will only have rosters from or only have players from three three teams or four teams. Um, but I do try to pick like one game that I think is the best game environment and build my cash lineup with a lot of exposure to that game. Now, do you play cash, Lilo? I don't. GPP only. Uh, heavy on single entry and three max, which I guess acts as my cash. Uh, but yeah, I really have nothing to add. I think X kind of hit the nail on the head there. Um, pretty much my thoughts exactly. All right. Next question is going to be a FanDuel question from Crossover King 78 uh, Can you discuss the specific differences with the softer cap on FanDuel? Should the approach still be targeting games or the scoring, uh, the heavy TD weight, no yard bonuses, uh, or full point scoring more conducive to individual plays. X, I know you play quite a bit on Fanduel. I'll probably pass it to you here. Yeah, I do. Um, 
So the scoring is different, right? Like it, it's more TD heavy. It's half point PPR instead of full. There's no there's no yardage bonuses. Um, the pricing is also generally regarded as softer, um, and so that actually creates some interesting dynamics. Where like for example, this week on FanDuel, we're not seeing massive projected ownership on guys like Callaway or Rondale Moore or Elijah Moore on these really cheap wide receivers that are that are going to be massively on a DraftKings um, because you don't like. The salary difference between like the mid tier and the and, and the, the the cheap tier is so much less on FanDuel. Um, I think we are going to see Andrew McCalloway. Everyone wants to play. Everyone wants to play Callaway. It's the Saints. It's a high total game. But I think like a lot of the other cheap wide receivers on FanDuel are going to come in a lot less than they are on DraftKings, and that's usually the case. Um, it's always different every week, so there's not like a rule you can apply. Like Kyle Pitts is also, I think, priced as the TE3 on FanDuel, whereas he's the TE like eight on DraftKings. So you always have to look at it like slate by slate and see like where the differences are really lining up. Um, but I do think like I still try to like my my roster building principles are the same at the end of the day. Like the scoring changes and that changes the projections of individual players. Um the strategy, like it tends to be a little less stars and scrubsy on FanDuel because you don't necessarily need to go to that scrub level that you do on DraftKings in order to get some stars in. You can generally fit some stars in your FanDuel roster without a bunch of scrubs. Um, but the overall strategy, like it doesn't really change. I'm still trying to do the same thing of, you know, identify the chalk construction um, and then and then figure out how to build, you know, build smartly, uh, smartly leverage the chalk construction. So one thing I will note is because of the softer pricing on FanDuel, there's two sort of side effects of that. One is it can be a little harder to figure out the chalk construction. Like it's so clear on DraftKings this week. Um, And it usually is on DraftKings when you have a situation like this where there's like, quote unquote, really good, really cheap value. Um, then it, then the chalk construction tends to become fairly clear. And on, on FanDuel, it's not quite always the case. It, it's a little tougher sometimes to puzzle out the chalk construction. Um, but it's still, you can still do it. It just takes a little more effort and a little more work. And it's generally going to be a little more ambiguous. Um, and the second thing is, shit, where was I going with this? What was the second thing? Um, oh, my God. My brain has failed. I don't remember the second thing. There was another thing I was thinking about, and I cannot for the life of me remember what it is. I'll come back to it if I could. I'll try to think about it. I'll come back to it if I do. All good. I'll come back to you. Uh, I'm sure there'll be more FanDuel questions and such, and you can always come back to it here. Um, this one is from Fonz87. So uh, how many rookies would you be comfortable with in your lineup for the Monster Field uh, $5 milli this week? Uh, I'll jump in here again. It, it's less so like rookies versus veterans. Like I don't care how much experience uh, a player has coming into a game because the end game total versus leverage versus, you know, how it makes the rest of your roster look uh, is so much more important. Like when we talk about rookies in week one, they're all going to be low priced, right? They're all going to be priced down. You know, the the one glaring exception for week one is Najee Harris, who, you know, all offseason has been touted as a workhorse running back. But like, so they're, they're, it's more, I guess, conducive to viewing the situation as uh, in, I guess, from the lens of a pricing versus how that affects the rest of your roster. So like, like we've talked about ad nauseum, this podcast, like, we're not really comfortable uh, with one, two, however many, you know, rookies are going to be 
played in a roster because these are the cheap guys that are really going to affect uh, how the rest of the rosters come together from the field. So uh, I would get, I guess my advice would be to divorce like rookie versus veteran versus, you know, that, that doesn't matter to me. It's really just how um, I can build the highest upside lineup that is leveraged from the field. All right. Um, X has remembered his fan duel. So step it on in here, X. Yeah, my brain worked again. Um, the other thing that's interesting about FanDuel, and I've been thinking about this for a while, uh, my experience has been with years of data across multiple sports to back this up, that FanDuel is uh, softer than DraftKings, or, or at least softer for me. I found more success there. And I'm trying to figure out why that is. And one theory I have, and I don't know if this is true, but a theory that I have is softer pricing leads people to make more roster construction mistakes because they become more focused on the individual plays they can put in their roster. So like when you can put like good name players whose names you know, and you're like, well, this guy's good and this guy's good, uh, then you tend to just build your roster by thinking about players. And you really can't build those kind of rosters on DraftKings most weeks. Like you can't build a roster full of guys who you just feel great about top to bottom. Like you're you're because the pricing is tighter you're usually going to have some guys you're like yeah this guy's kind of thin but like he does have upside and all and he's, he works in the stack or um so you usually have to kind of go a little bit more aggressive on like dipping into like thinner parts of the player pool on DraftKings, and so i think that tends to lead to players on DraftKings thinking more about like about their rosters as opposed to just players and, and that's not to say that like DraftKings is this like amazingly sharp field where no one else can win right like i think there's still opportunity for smart players to to be plus ev on the field on both sites um but i do think though that like on FanDuel, the the softer pricing just leads to people kind of like just clicking the player names they know and like because because uh, you can afford to do so all right i'm going to jump to another couple questions here guys if you have any more questions to, uh, that you want to raise your hand and jump on stage, feel free to. We don't have anybody waiting right now. Um, this question, we seem to get a lot, and I'm going to read this one. It might get a little confusing, but I'll let you guys handle it here. Um, it has to do with how you enter your single entry uh, lineups when it comes to entering multiple uh, lineups. So I'll read the question. If you guys need me to read it again, I can. Um, say you're playing 10 separate single entry tournaments and another 10 three entry max tournaments. Do you guys use a single bullet lineup in all 10 single entry tournaments? And do you use your single entry lineups in your three entry max tournaments? And that's from Blues Broker. Yeah, I'll jump on that one. Um, so it depends on your goals. So you have to define the, before you get into any of this uh, theory, roster construction, any of the higher level DFS stuff, like you have to be honest with yourself with what your goals are. And that will, naturally answer this question for you for me i am a single entry three max by trade that's what i do i don't play cash and i use yeah, basically why i do that is because my thing is game theory and above average roster construction so how do i or where did i identify that like as the where where can i apply those skills uh in the most ev way well for me that was single entry and three max because people are entering cash lineups in their single entry and three max. They are entering their single entry lineups in three max. They are trying to manage variance and not utilize game theory in those 
specific contest. So that is where my natural progression carried me to. And that was based on my own skill sets, my goals. My goals are to, to ship GPPs. Like that's what I want to do week in and week out. I just choose to do that typically through the single entry and three max medium. With that understanding, I, when I'm entering those contests, I'm always, or I guess I should say, I am never entering my single entry roster into my three max uh, pool. And if I'm playing multiple different price points, I'm going to basically enter various rosters into various three max contests based on the total size of the field. And that goes into contest selection and uh, how it directly correlates to how much variance we need to accept, yada, 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 down the line. Uh, But if you have questions on contest selection with respect to variance, uh, definitely go check out uh, the most recent course on roster construction that I wrote this offseason. I dive into that pretty in depth. But for me, that is my best application of my goals versus my skill set versus what I want to accomplish. Can I say plus one? Um, I also want to note something that Hilo kind of mentioned that I think is bears repeating, which is what one thing you heard from Hilo's answer is he talked about like he's identified what he's really good at and he leans in and just focuses on that. He's not like throwing 150 in the millibaker. He doesn't play cash. Like he's, he's laser focused on what he's good at. And, you know, that's kind of a realization I came to as well. And you know, no one's going to be good at everything, right? No one's going to be plus EV at every single type of contest on every single DFS site. If you want to be successful in DFS, find the area of DFS. It's a big space now. Like it can be showdown. It can be cash games. It can be big tournaments, small tournaments, limited entry tournaments. It can be all FanDuel, all DraftKings, all Yahoo, right? Like there's a million different niches and ways you can construct the niche for yourself. Um, but if you want, if your goal is profitability, which it should be for most people, right? Um, figure out your niche, figure out where you're strongest and hammer that edge relentlessly and don't get distracted trying to be like, well, I'm going to toss a lineup in this thing just in case. Like that's how you bleed money. Those are good answers. That comes up, honestly, we get that question all the time. So I think you'll have that again and you know, something we'll want to hammer home with uh, the audience of kind of really figuring that out for themselves. Um, I got two more for you guys. Uh, these aren't necessarily, uh, specific to this week, uh, but questions that we also get a lot. Um, this one is from D ward four. Uh, what's the process you, what's part of your process you guys think needs the most improvement or has the most room to improve? X, Hilo? I'm noting Hilo's not unmuting. Hilo's clearly not unmuting because his process is perfect. Um, I was thinking. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, man. That's a, that's a really, really good question. I love that question um, because to the, the point of it is that none of us are at our you know final stage of evolution as DFS players, right? The, the, the industry is evolving. The game is evolving. If, like, you know, what made me successful five years ago is not enough to make me successful today. So we all have to keep continuing to learn. Um, I would say for me, it's hesitation to go all in like when I feel incredibly confident about a play 
and I've done it a few times in my like DFS career. I've I've lock buttoned a guy, and across 150 lineups, probably the most infamous is uh, lock buttoning Corderell Patterson of all people when he was on the Patriots, uh, which actually won me one of my first big showdown tournaments. Um, and I just I sometimes I have a hard time doing that. Everything points to a guy being a strong play. Uh, sometimes the guy could be the guy could be popular or he could be low owned. It doesn't really matter. Um, but I sometimes everything points to a guy being a strong play, and I'll 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 be like, well, I could modestly overweight the field, or I'll you know he's ten percent, he's coming at ten percent, so I'll be thirty percent. Um, and I, that's something I need to get better at is just being willing to say like when I like that's like I said before when you have an edge, push it. And sometimes having an edge is is a type of contest. Sometimes having an edge is just a, a take that you feel, whether it's a player or an overall sort of construction or strategy for a slate, um, just being able to go all in on that. And, and sometimes I get a little too hedgy when I'm entering 150 lineups and something. Yeah, I love that. Um, I'm definitely guilty of that as well. I would I would say my... Probably the biggest hole that I've really, really worked hard this offseason because it has been uh, a recent thing is still bankroll management. Um, and that is something that like it really you have to you have to nail bankroll management uh, and be really, really on top of it for the from from now until forever uh, with respect to any form of gaming, gambling, uh, you know, poker, whether you're doing sports betting or DFS like you have to have tight, tight bankroll management. And as recent as last year, uh, sob story, um, I was up about 17 weekly buy-ins over the first five weeks of the season, which is an insane run. I was, I was hitting everything. I had this full head of steam. I got really complacent with bankroll management and DraftKings in week six was running a $4,444 entry milli maker. And I took some shots in that uh, and blew 60% of those profits in one week uh, by bubbling that. Uh, so bankroll management is huge. Something I still, you know, you constantly have to be real with yourself or rein it back in uh, and be on top of that at all times because literally one week, one slate even, one main slate uh, put a huge hit to my profitability just last year. I remember that for you. I remember you needed like one more catch or something like that to just, you know, just min cash and like feel at least you'd, you know, skated by. Fuck. Week, week six, Darrell Henderson, I needed like, it ended up being 6.4 points for a min cash. And he ended up putting up like 4.9 points after getting benched. It was great. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, last night, I, I think last night in Showdown, I, I could have gotten, I could have cashed with zero from Rojo. But he actually scored negative. So <laughs> thanks, asshole. <laughs> uh, All right, last one. Um, what uh, this this came in? They asked about game theory, but I'll, I'll kind of just kind of leave it open here. Uh, recommend a book you guys uh, have read, either for DFS that you guys would recommend to uh, the entire community. Yeah. So there's. Oh. Yeah, you Sorry, first. there's there's really there's really no books regarding DFS like that. That's not a thing. So all of the explorations that I've done over the past three and a half years with respect to game theory is me taking learning from other fields with respect to game theory and applying it to DFS. And that goes that spans everything from 
epistemology, which is the theory of knowledge that spans everything from crowd psychology to individual psychology, the actual theory of the game of DFS, because it is a game in and of, in and of itself. Um, so to that end, there's really no books that I could re- recommend outside of like personal growth and personal development books, because those are what alter your your mantra, your being that allow you to accept these new theories and practices that nobody else is doing and have conviction in doing so. So um, other than that, if you go to, um, oh God, what's the site? If you go to, oh man, now I'm drawing a blank. Uh, oh, Oxford a- Amazon Journal. is where you buy books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go there, go there. Uh, they deliver too. You can get expedite. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but if you go to oxfordjournal.com, I think it's Oxford Journal, type that into Google. And what comes up is the Oxford Journal, which comes out every year that has uh, basically um, scientific and different field study reports and papers. And I scour that thing uh, pretty heavily during the off season to really tailor um, my application of game theory to DFS uh, for the coming year. Oh, man. So I was a philosophy major in college, and it made me so happy to hear you mention epistemology. Um, just because I like always like finding ways to like convince myself that spending four years studying philosophy was not a waste of time. Um, I read a lot. Uh, like uh, I've actually read a book called Theory of Games and Economic Behavior, which I thought was really good. Um, but my knowledge of game theory is far... Uh, Hilo is, is far more about it than I do. Um, but I would say, like, you know, there's nothing... There's no books on DFS, really. Um, but... Books that teach you how to think. Um, finance is actually a really good area of books because they teach you how to think about risk. Um, and so like anything by Nicholas Taleb, like uh, he's the author of Black Swan, um, which is about like uh, underappreciated tail end risk. Um, what else? Anything by Malcolm Gladwell, like Outliers, Blink, those are really good. Um you know, books that teach you how to think and how to think like critical thinking, right? Like you want to be successful in DFS, learn to be a critical thinker. And there's a lot that goes into that. It's a very broad term. Um, but books that teach you how to use your mind effectively, how to think critically about complicated subjects. So yeah, I'd, I'd recommend Taleb, Gladwell. Um, I'm struggling with others. I read so much now it's sometimes like hard to piece out like what book had what piece of content in it because like my day job is like, in business in finance too sort of and so like i tend to read a lot of like stuff in that space um oh actually a really really good one um is a book called noise which is about human judgment and how human how how like the flaws of human judgment and given how often we're making uh judgment calls in dfs uh it's a it's tremendously useful to understand the way the human brain makes judgment calls and where uh judgment fails us so that's actually like one of the most significant books uh, on like human thought process that I've read in the last couple of years and highly recommend it. I haven't read that and I'm going to go check that out right now. All right. You guys have time I'll for two more. We got a couple of hands in the, in the audience. I'd love to take. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. Cool. Um, SKD023. I am going to invite you up. Something should uh, pop up on your screen for you to accept it and allow you to come up on stage. Oh, 
All right, SKD, are you there? He's on his phone. I don't know where to tell you it's at on the phone if you're uh, looking, but something should pop up. I'm going to bring uh, Millie 5 on. Millie on 5 up actually right now, so hold on. Million five, you have a invite if you can accept it and come up on stage. All right, perfect. Go ahead, floor is yours. All right, good evening, guys. Uh, real quick, uh, so there's some on the NFL edge. There's a lot of uh tributary scenarios that y'all put up, and quite a few of them seem to make a lot of sense. So the question being, is there ever been a lineup that y'all made that was just chock full of the tributary scenarios? And uh, do y'all feel that those are even viable? Yeah, for sure. And what you're seeing for week one, why there are so many tributaries is because there, there's a lot more unknowns um, when you talk about a standard week later on in the season. So thinking about like a week 15, 16, 17 slate where team identities have been firmly established. We know what's going on compared to week one, where half of the teams have new coaching staffs, new front offices, whatever the case may be. Personnel have changed teams, uh, new identities, offensive, defensive identities, uh, kind of everything we talked about with the, with the running backs that we talked about, how there, there is more uncertainty this week than it, there is in a standard week. Um, that's kind of why you're seeing more tributaries from the actual game breakdowns, because from a, a general rule is DFS players are going to think they know more in week one than they actually know. So that's kind of why there's more tributaries on a more standard week. You're probably going to see like, like four to six out of the 11 games or whatever the case may be, you know, less than half are likely going to have tributary scenarios because we have a, a very more concrete sense of how a game is likeliest to play out. And you know, what, what is the percentage chance of a tributary for us to include it in a write-up? Like, I don't know what, what that number is, but it's a, like, higher than the field's perception chance of a game playing out differently. Uh, and again, it's, it's how, how the actual game breakout, breakdown differs from what could, you know, from a high percentage chance happen uh, within an NFL game that's being played by imperfect humans. So um, to, I guess loop that full circle and answer your question and bring it home about would I be okay accepting a lineup with complete tributaries? And the only real way to answer that is it depends like week one this week, a hundred percent like, and then what contests are you entering that in? Is it a cash lineup? Probably not. Like, is it a Millie maker, large field GPP with four, 400 million thousand people playing the contest, like, yeah, I'd, I'd probably accept that level of, of risk. And all that is doing basically is, is going into your acceptance level of variance. I hope that wasn't too convoluted, but hopefully that answered your question. Awesome, Hilo. Thank you, and thanks for the question. Thanks for coming up on stage. Um, all right, guys. Thank you, everybody, for the time tonight. Uh, this was the first show. Uh, I think Kylo and X, you guys absolutely crushed it tonight. Um, thank you for making time late on a Friday with us. And in the future, we're going to be trying to shoot for 6 p.m. Eastern to have this. 
And uh, by tomorrow morning, you should have this up on your podcast stream. Um, and if you guys have any questions, hit us up on Discord. And uh, good luck this weekend. 6 p.m. Eastern yeah. on Saturdays, right, Aaron? Yeah, 6 p.m. Eastern on Saturdays. I'll remind you, don't worry. <laughs> I just want to throw a thanks to Hilo. Uh, This whole like stream hosting podcast thing is uh, this is not my game. So I want to say thank you to Hilo for uh, you know orchestrating it and sort of hosting and guiding the discussion. So thanks, man, for make help making me look good. You look so good too. It's the it's the gut. You see the gut there, the little little avatar. Sweet, guys. That is a wrap for week one. Thanks for coming to hang out with us, and uh, we will see you at the top of the leaderboards come Sunday. Yeah, good luck, everyone. We'll see you in Discord over the next, uh, what, day and a half as we get everything ready. Um, you know, Hilo and I will both be there. Uh, Jam will be around, you know, some of the other contributors. Uh, I've seen uh, M. Johnson a lot in Discord, so we got, you know, still got a lot of folks around to talk to, talk through strategy with. Uh, let's go crush it this weekend. Have a great week one, everyone. Yeah.